From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Galen, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Marie, Elena, Alethea, John, Katoras, Nanette, Rachel, Sam, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, Stacy, and Holly. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for everyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead, as they have been kind enough to sponsor me, and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be on Douglas Clark and his accomplice, Carol Bundy, otherwise known as the Sunset Strip Killers. This one comes with my infamous disclaimer disclaimer as it gets rather intense and graphic. Just warning the few that appreciate the heads up. Douglas Daniel Clark was born on March 10, 1948 in Pennsylvania. Carol Mary Bundy was born on August 26, 1942 in California. So, as we do, let's get into some history for that time. Now, we have discussed this countless times, but the 1940s overall was a pivotal decade in history. In 1940, we saw Germany invading Denmark, Norway, France, Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands for World War II. In 1941, the GI Bill was signed by President Roosevelt, which provided financial aid to World War II veterans. The next year, the draft age in the United States was lowered from 21 to 18. In 1943, there was an uprising in the Warsaw Jewish ghetto against the Nazis. In 1944, on D-Day, 150,000 Allied troops successfully stormed the beaches of Normandy. Then, in 1945, World War II ended as Allied forces, along with the Soviet Union, took Germany and Japan surrendered after the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs on them. Towards the end of the 40s, India and Pakistan gained their independence from the United Kingdom, Israel was created as an independent Jewish state, and NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was established. For something a bit different, some technology that was developed during the 40s, the 45 RPM record, the atomic bomb and atomic power, automation or automobiles, life-saving dialysis, the microwave oven, 
the transistor and Velcro. In 1940, the average house cost about $3,900, and by 1949, the cost had more than doubled, yet the yearly income had only gone up by another $1,000. So this was the atmosphere that Doug and Carol were born into. Doug was the third of five and the son of a military man and seemed to have had a comfortable childhood. His father was Franklin Clark, who was an intelligence officer. We all know that military kids, unfortunately, must move around quite a bit, and this was no exception for Doug, and it was said that they moved frequently. Doug actually later said he and his family had lived in 37 different countries, but of course, who can validate that for accuracy? Doug stated during his later trial that his mother had always known, quote, I've been a little weird for a long time. She caught me dressed in her and my sister's underwear when I was nine years old, end quote. He said that he had had a wide variety of sexual interests since he was in the ninth grade, and he went on to say, quote, And since then, I've never been able to look at sex just straight on. It had to be kinky or at least good communication, end quote. But it is important to note that court case documents state that his mother, while testifying, said that Doug had had no behavioral problems at school and his grades were good. She had never noticed any mental or behavioral issues about him at all. And I have attached the court documents in the notes below if you'd like to read it for yourself. His father would later say that there was competitiveness between Doug and one of his brothers, but that it was no more than any normal sibling rivalry. His father also said that he never noticed anything unusual about Doug's behavior or attitudes while he was growing up. Doug's brother disagreed, stating that Doug was a compulsive liar and was withdrawn, sullen, and took issue with authority. When Doug was 10 years old, his father left the Navy to work as an engineer with the transport company of Texas, though it is said the family still moved around. Some researchers believe that this was just a cover and that his father continued to work in intelligence. But they also reportedly lived in the Marshall Islands, then San Francisco, and then all the way over to India and even Switzerland for a while. During his time abroad, Doug was enrolled in an exclusive international school in Geneva, Switzerland, and then later attended the Culver Military Academy, which is a college preparatory boarding school in Indiana. He thought he might follow in his father's footsteps in the military, but even with the stability and regimed upbringing he had outside of moving a lot, he was a bit of a troublemaker, especially as a teen. Doug allegedly would record his sexual encounters with girls he went to school with without the girls knowing, but this would be the beginning of his insatiable sexual appetite that would only grow more and more dangerous. So after graduating high school in 1967, he joined the Air Force and was stationed in Colorado and then Ohio. I couldn't find out exactly how his time in the Air Force was, but he was eventually discharged and went back to the nomadic lifestyle he had always known, drifting around for the next 10 years or so, finding work here and there. He worked at a soap factory in Burbank, California, as well as working as a mechanic. 
he began spending his free time frequenting different bars looking for one-night stands. In fact, he had actually nicknamed himself, quote, the king of the one-night stand, describing his vocation as a sexual athlete. Doug eventually moved to Los Angeles and in with his sister and her husband. He met a woman named Beverly in a North Hollywood bar. She was described as heavy and she felt unattractive, but Doug paid so much attention to her and complimented her that she fell for his charms. They eventually married. When she caught him wearing her underwear, she didn't let herself be concerned. When he told her he wanted to wife swap or have threesomes, she relented. But after four years of marriage, they divorced, though sources say they remained friends. Doug began working as a steam plant operator for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, but then one night, he just quit. He got another job, but was fired because he was missing too much work and, you know, threatening violence against his co-workers. At one point, he set fire to his own car to try to collect the insurance money, though later he would tell Carol it was to get rid of, quote, evidence. He continued trolling bars, looking for single and lonely older women whom he felt he could seduce and take their money. One evening in late 1979, 31-year-old Doug walked into a bar called, quote, Little Nashville and met such a woman, Carol Bundy. So let's get into her backstory. Carol Mary Peters was the second out of three children to Charles and Gladys Peters. Her childhood was not a pleasant one. Charles had been a terrible alcoholic who had uprooted his family from town to town for his work as a movie theater troubleshooter. Gladys, who had apparently been a stand-in for a famous tap dancing star, worked as a hairdresser. Now, Gladys seemed to be a proud woman who was all about appearances, and though I would never describe any child this way, her own mother considered her an unattractive, overweight, and awkward child. One story goes that at just eight years old, for reasons unknown, Gladys locked the doors, and when Carol had arrived home from school, she was unable to get into the house. Confused at first, she began to cry and beg through the door for her mother to let her inside, but Gladys told her to leave because she was not her daughter. Charles had to step in and demanded Gladys let their daughter in, but it was said from that day onward she acted like Carol didn't exist. Charles also couldn't allow Gladys to discipline the children at all, because if she did, she would lose her mind and beat them with a belt relentlessly until someone forced her to stop. Carol's younger sister later recalled that during one of Gladys's tirades, she was beating young Carol around her face and all over her body with a belt, all while Carol sat in a chair reading a comic book. So during what sounds like a rather intense beating, Carol sat stoically in her chair, refusing to acknowledge the horrid abuse that she was enduring because that way she felt in control. And when it was over, her mother was instantly forgiven. Carol trained herself to be the forever victim who could completely forgive her abuser. Now, sometime when Carol was around 11 years old, Gladys died. That very same night after her death, Charles 
told his daughters that they would have to take their mother's place in bed. Once they realized what was going to happen, they played a little game to see who would have to go and Carol's little sister lost. Either way, both sisters were sexually abused by their father. Not long after the abuse began, it is said that Carol began running naked through the streets at night. Thankfully, Charles remarried around a year later and the sexual abuse allegedly stopped. But by then it was too late. Carol realized for herself that the boys and especially the school bus driver were rather fond of her very large breasts and she was happy to get the attention. But once Charles was remarried, he began to physically beat her, humiliate her, call her fat and stupid. And then one day, when Carol got home from school, she entered an empty house. The family cat was dead on the floor. Charles came into the house and said he had wanted to murder the entire family, but his wife had wrestled the gun from him. So Carol and her sister were entered into foster care, switching homes a few times before going to live with their grandmother in Michigan for a while. But in less than a year, Charles returned for his daughters, who were then living with an uncle and took them back with him to California. But the abuse continued. So at 17 years old, Carol married a 56-year-old man named Leonard, but the marriage was quickly over. He had been a mean alcoholic who had wanted her to prostitute herself for money. Not long after, she met and married 32-year-old Richard, who was a writer specializing in science fiction and pornography. He was attracted to her eagerness to please him, but he saw that she was an intelligent girl and he encouraged her to write and she found that she did have a talent for it. One of her short stories was published in a mainstream magazine, which would be a win for any writer. She wrote a piece for a science fiction magazine as well. She also began writing a novel, but after only a few pages, she quit. She was also quite talented at drawing, but she gave that up as well. And then in 1962, when she was 20 years old, her father hung himself. Her then-husband, Richard, later said that he believed she took the responsibility of her father's sexual abuse and his suicide, martyring herself, which would become a pattern that was very much a part of her personality at this point. She started having affairs on her husband, sleeping with other women as well until they hurt her. Then she would return to men until that ended, back and forth. But eventually, she would go back to Richard. So the couple decided to move to Oregon to live, but then Richard found out that she had been prostituting herself. He gathered the money together and paid for her to go to nursing school after the couple moved back to Southern California. The school was in Santa Monica, and she graduated valedictorian of her class in 1968. And though she and Richard divorced, they did remain close friends for years after. Carol then met Grant Bundy, who was also working as a nurse, and the marriage was pretty good, all things considered, until their first son was born. The relationship got abusive, and Grant allegedly shoved her around and belittled her. They had a second son, and the abuse escalated still further, with Grant beating her. The violence escalated, and she began having an affair with a woman, but had to end things when her lover had squandered thousands of dollars of Carol's money. And then, 
Carol's eyesight began to deteriorate rapidly. It had never been great, but now it was so bad that she was unable to work, and Grant became rather violent at the prospect of having to not only care for their two sons, but now Carol as well. So in early 1979, Carol took her two sons and left him, going to a shelter for battered women. But she was quickly able to find an apartment in Van Nuys for herself and her children, who were, at this point, nine and five years old. The managers of the apartments was a married couple, Jack and Jeanette Murray. Jack himself had hailed from Australia, but had immigrated to the U.S. to try to make it as a singer. His wife was aware that he had had some affairs, but she took one look at Carol and felt quite safe in knowing he wouldn't be fooling around with her. When Jack began spending time off and on over at Carol's apartment, Jeanette wasn't worried. When Jack began driving Carol around to run errands, she thought nothing of it. But as we already know, Carol was able to charm Jack and they began sleeping together. But Jack had been kind to her. He helped her get disability benefits and he took her to a doctor who could restore most of her eyesight. She really became obsessed with him and of course he told her that he'd be able to leave his wife in a couple of years but that she must stop following him around the apartment complex all day and she agreed. To her, this was better than being alone and unloved. Carol was able to get her eye surgery and was again able to see. When her ex-husband sold their house, she got a settlement from that as well, $25,000 to be exact, and she began to spend it with reckless abandon. And the relationship between her and Jack and the ever back and forth became intense. She showered him with money and gifts, only he began to distance himself from her. So one evening, she fixed herself up and was set to meet Jack at a bar called Little Nashville, hoping he would profess his undying love. But when she arrived, she found Jack and Jeanette there together. She was instantly distraught, but then noticed a rather handsome man smiling at her, and they began to chat. And this is how Doug and Carol met. She found him rather charming and respectful and attentive. She gave him her phone number, and two days later he called, stating he wanted to come over for dinner. She agreed, and the pair had dinner together in Carol's apartment with her two sons there, and they liked Doug immediately. Once the boys were in bed, Doug said he wanted to spend the night, and that first night they had sex. He cooed at her during it and told her how special she was, how intelligent she was, and seemed to be very much interested in making sure she was, let's say, satisfied, and, well, she was hooked right then and there. So the next morning, he went right into his game of telling her that he was, you know, having issues with his landlady and could he move in some of his stuff into her apartment. She happily agreed. But around that time, Jack and Jeanette asked her to move out of the complex and she reluctantly found another just a few miles down the road. But of course, Jack continued to visit her and would conveniently need something. And after having sex with her, Carol would gladly give it to him. Well, Jack and Doug were quite aware of each other and there was no love lost between them. I would gather that both understood exactly what the other was up to regarding Carol and neither wanted to lose their meal ticket, so to speak. 
but Carol delighted in the idea that they were jealous of each other over her. So in order to impress Doug, she decided to feed him stories of how Jack was abusive and how he had conned her out of so much money, which he had. Doug insisted she cut him out of her life completely. She didn't. And by this point, Doug was living with her completely, although he wasn't paying his part of the bills, but that was fine. She was able to see a lot better now and got a job as a vocational nurse at Valley Medical Center, and she made good money. At night, she and Doug would lay in bed and they would tell each other about their deepest, darkest fantasies. One of her favorites of his was where he would kidnap a young girl and keep her locked away to be used when he wanted as a sex slave and even necrophilia. He indulged her want for bondage and domination. Eventually and inevitably, the secret fantasy talk went as far as Doug confessing to Carol that it was fun to murder and any woman that loved him would be willing to kill for him. And Carol was eagerly a participant. So in late spring 1980, Doug told Carol she should own a gun and the pair went to a pawn shop and bought two, though both were registered under Carol. And seeing Doug with a gun turned Carol on even more. So she had her man on her pedestal and he had a woman who would cook and clean for him, spend money on him, basically a mother. And of course they shared an intense sexual appetite. Now her sons noticed how different their mother was acting and one in particular demanded Carol order Doug out of their home. But Carol allegedly slapped him in the face and in fact, it got to where both Doug and Carol would regularly beat her sons. One incident, Doug said to Carol with her son Chris in the room how he could easily kill the boy that he would stab him through his back and through his heart. He described everything in fine detail while the boy stood horrified and Carol listened impassively. Doug also began to tell Carol that he didn't want to have sex with her anymore because she was, quote, very unattractive. But the more ugly and mean he was to her, the more determined she was to please him. Then this escalated to the pair going out together and Doug hiring a prostitute, ordering Carol into the back seat to watch the girl attempt to service Doug, though apparently it was more unsuccessful than it was. Thankfully, Carol eventually had some kind of epiphany or wake-up call because she gave custody of her two sons back to their father, who then promptly sent them to finish being raised by his parents. Thank God. One night, Doug came back to their now new apartment close to his work, covered in blood, including his teeth. Then he came home like this again the next week. Soon after, he attacked a prostitute, stabbing her repeatedly, but she managed to project herself out of the car and Doug drove away. His favorite hunting grounds seemed to be the Sunset Strip, which is an area of Hollywood notorious for its more shady business adventures, we'll say. In June 1980, Doug picked up two teenage stepsisters, 15 and 16 years old, as he found them sitting at a bus stop. He drove to a fairly secluded spot and forced Cindy to pleasure him orally. He quickly shot both girls in the head, killing them. 
He then took them to a garage he rented and sexually assaulted their remains. He took Polaroids of them, then put their bloody clothing and a blanket soaked in their blood into a duffel bag in the back seat and dumped their bodies. He then went to visit a side girlfriend he had. Well, Carol was aware of the other woman and decided she wanted her car back. So she went over to where the car was, got in and noticed the bag in the back. She opened it to find the blood-soaked clothing and blanket and went to a laundromat where she washed everything clean, but ultimately had to toss the blanket as it just wasn't salvageable. She asked him about it and he confessed everything. But instead of being horrified, she felt complimented that he would trust her with such information and it made her feel that much closer to him. Oh my God. And in fact, she helped him lure an 11-year-old neighbor girl over to their place while she posed for pornographic images. He actually hung out with this little girl quite a bit. God knows what else he did to her. He began speaking often about pedophilia, and then he finally said he wanted to know what it was like to murder a woman while they were having sex. He was curious how the vaginal spasms would feel while she was dying. On June 20th, 1980, Doug and Carol, for the first time, went together to kill. They picked up a blonde young lady who they thought had been around 17 years old. Carol was in the back seat. The girl attempted to service Doug, but let's say his body wouldn't respond. He motioned for Carol to give him her gun, and he shot the girl in the head, only she didn't die. You would think that Carol would have been horrified, but no. Sources said that she sat calmly in the back seat, watching everything Doug was doing. She then got in the front seat and began undressing her while she was dying. They then drove to a secluded area, pulled her out of the car, and left her in some bushes, not knowing if she was dead or not. Soon after, Doug went out alone and spotted a sex worker, and she got in the car with him. While she was also in a <clears throat> head-down position, he shot her, only in that moment it made her teeth clench, leaving a bite mark. He dragged her out of the car, got the kill kit Carol had put together for him out, which contained knives, paper towels, liquid cleaner, trash bags, and rubber gloves, and then decapitated her. He left her body there, but he took the head back with him in a plastic bag. He then went back, picked up one of her friends, her not knowing, of course, that her girlfriend's head was in the floorboard behind her. He took her off somewhere secluded and shot her quickly. He then stole her jewelry and her money. He went home to Carol where the pair played with the head. Yes, my friends, they kept it in the freezer when they weren't playing with it. Immediately after, Carol and Doug sold the car, got a small chest to put the head in and Carol threw it from the moving car only she hadn't thrown it far enough away and Doug ran over it, smashing the wood a bit. He spent the rest of the night berating and belittling her, telling her that she was useless. And not long after, a man found the box, opened, and immediately alerted the police. Doug and Carol's relationship quickly declined. 
He had never really stopped seeing other women, only now there were far more. But when they did go out trolling for their next victim, ladies had heard the news about the Sunset Strip murders, so the working girls were being much more careful and staying in groups for their safety. So Carol began to see that the situation was getting bad, so she called her ex-husband and told him everything. He told her to leave Doug immediately, but she already had reasons as to why she didn't want to ready to go. She then told him that she had made all of that up and that, you know, it hadn't happened. She explained that she was writing again and wanted to spin the tale to see if they were believable for a story she was working on. Her co-workers began noticing that she was just all over the place and they began avoiding her. On July 29th, sources said it was all too much and she attempted to end her life by injecting an ultra-high dose of insulin and swallowing a bunch of pills. She called her work and left word that she was going to do this so they should know she wouldn't be in the next day. She had left Doug a note detailing her intentions. She believed he would come running. Of course, that didn't happen. As she felt the effects of her effort, she managed to drive herself and call for help and paramedics arrived. Once she recovered, she called her old pal Jack to come pick her up. After that, she was back to chasing him and they were in a bar. She had had enough to drink that she began telling Jack everything she and Doug had done. He said that he might call the police, so she was able to get him to get into the back of his van with her, only she shot and decapitated him. In her panic, she had left quite a few clues behind. Two days later, she confessed to co-workers that she had murdered Jack and they called the police. When she was questioned by police, she gave a full confession, implicating herself and Doug. He was arrested soon after. They found various murder weapons around his workplace. His defense, and then he fired his lawyer and even defended himself, during the trial was to say that Jack and Carol had actually been the murderers and that they had framed him for the six murders he was charged with, though it's believed to be more. In 1983, he was sentenced to death. Carol struck a plea deal if she would testify against Doug, and she was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. But it was said that her testimony was quite inconsistent, and she was allowed to change her story for various details but she did confess to enjoying the murders. Once in prison, Carol still supported Doug, if you can imagine. Now, Carol died of heart failure in 2003. She was 61 years old. As of this recording, Doug is still alive and sitting on death row. In 2015, Doug was quoted as saying, quote, I don't think I'll ever live long enough to get out of here, but you get by. I've always been a very Zen person, end quote. Doug was analyzed for the trial, and it was said that he had antisocial personality disorder. We know this is a person who shows a lack of respect toward others and does not follow socially accepted norms or rules. They can break laws, cause physical or emotional harm to others around them, 
They also refuse to take responsibility for their behaviors and or display disregard for the negative consequences of their reactions. To me, with regards to Carol, my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I'm not officially diagnosing, it's just my opinion, she seems to fit the histrionic personality disorder type. This disorder is marked by intense, unstable emotions and distorted self-image. Their self-esteem depends on the approval of others and doesn't come from a true feeling of self-worth. They have an overwhelming desire to be noticed by others and may display dramatic and or inappropriate behaviors to get attention. But tell me guys, what do you think of this story? Leave me a comment below. All of my contact information is there. You can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. But most important, thank you guys so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs>